Good morning and happy new year to you all. I'm not sure what new year means to you, but um, for some it means a fresh start, new goals and new plans. For some it's just one of those annoyances. We've got to remember now to write 2022 instead of 2021. So, If you guys need a Bible this morning, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of John. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Our ushers would love to hand you one. It usually does take me about a month or so to make that switch, right? To start, stop writing 2021 and start now writing 2022. Except for I'm sure we're all we're very eager to stop writing 2020 when that, that, that year ended, right? And are you a resolution person? Apparently, I looked this up, 31% of Americans are. I would have thought it was more, but I guess only 31% are resolution type people. No matter if you are or if you aren't, the, the calendar has turned. It's a new month. It's a new year. And only the, no, only the Lord knows what's going to hold for us in this year. Today's January 2nd. As you can see, the Christmas decorations uh, are gone. They're back in storage for another year. And as Ben shared last week, the debates will continue just to roll on as to when we fire up the Christmas music again. And I want to say, just for the record, like, I'm not traditionally a fan of Christ, Christ, Christmas music in July. I understand the desire, though, to celebrate Christmas and to celebrate the birth of our Savior all year long. I'm just not sure I'm ready to hear jingle bells in July. But now, to be fully transparent, I was the dad that put all the Christmas movies away for the year, and they could only come out again during the Christmas season. So that gives you, sheds a little bit of light on who I was or who I am. Um, my logic, though, I thought it was kind of sound, was that um, they wouldn't be special if we watched them all year long. And so you just save them for, for Christmas. But then now, as I begin to apply that logic to the meaning of Christmas and the thoughts of celebrating the advent of Emmanuel, God with us, I can admit that logic might need some reconsidering. So I'm going to slightly keep the Christmas theme rolling just a little bit longer. Um, I don't know, did your family grow up uh, doing Advent, having a Christmas Advent during the Christmas season? Or maybe, maybe your family does it now. My mom used to put up four candles um, on the mantle, and we'd light one for each week uh, in the month of December. One for hope, one for peace, one for joy, and one for love. Um, they were tall candles, and for me that was kind of a uh, that was a, a troublesome thing because, um, well, I knocked him over a lot. I, I was that boy that played ball in the house way more than I was supposed to. And so I'm not sure if the candles lost more wax from being burnt or from me knocking them over and seeing chunks of wax everywhere. But Ben's message last week taught us, though, that God gives peace to the lowly, to the, the Savior King. And so why not keep considering the advent of hope peace, joy, and love. Now, I'm not advocating you keep your Advent calendar or your Advent can, candles up all year. That's up to you. But why not? Why not keep considering hope, peace, and joy, and, and love all year long? Um, and as Ben, like I shared, Ben's message last week taught us that God gives peace to the lowly through a, a lowly Savior King. A message I want to keep hearing, especially as we continue uh, in a COVID climate. So this morning, we are going to consider... We're going to consider, take our time um, considering joy, the joy we have in the Lord. Like peace, hope, and love, joy is under constant attack. The reality is it's, it's, it's been that way since the garden. God's, think about this, God's image bearers um, walking with God in, in perfect peace. Their joy was full. God walked with them, and they had all that they needed. But Satan, hating them, 
and the joy they experienced in God sparked a lie. Genesis chapter 3 tells us that Satan said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die for God knows what That when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There are so many levels of deceit in that in this lie, but one of them is that their joy was was limited, was being limited. The joy that they had in God somehow could be approved upon. And we see um, in the beginning of our Bible, Genesis chapter three, verse six, we see Eve's response that that seed had taken root. she said, it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good, was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. God's image bearers were given every plant and every tree, dominion over every crea- a creature, were fed a lie that that wasn't enough. The joy they had in God wasn't enough, and more was to be had. And ever since then, the joy we have in God has been under attack. Survey the Old Testament, and you'll see story after story of God's people not resting in the joy to be had in him. From God's people in the desert turning to the golden calf, to their desire to have an earthly king rather than God be their king. The joy to be found in God has been under attack. And now, before we kind of put that in the category of that was then and this is now, I'm sure we can all agree that this, wasn't, this isn't just an Old Testament problem, right? Over the last couple of years, at its core, joy has been under attack. The steady stream of bad news wrapped in fear and conflict brings a daily barrage against having joy. And without God, there is truly nothing we could build a foundation of joy on that won't get shaken and ruined. But even those who love God, joy can be taken from us. And at the heart of the problem may not be a problem of, of robbery, Satan trying to steal our joy. But, I, but rather, I, I propose that the problem lies in where we look as the source of joy, and even how we define it. That's why uh, the main point this, that's going to be displayed behind me here this morning is this. A joy found um, in the temporal is temporary. But a joy found in Christ is eternal. I want to explore this topic looking at the Gospel of John as as well as other texts to kind of support this statement. So if you would turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 16. While you turn there, let me set the scene for you. It's, it's It's a unique one to John's Gospel. Some of the teachings and interactions Jesus had with his disciples are only recorded in John's Gospel here. Some of these interactions. And in John 16, we find Jesus with his disciples on the doorstep of being betrayed and led to the cross. Jesus had shared a meal with them. Jesus had washed his disciples' feet, cleansing them and setting them apart. He has given them a new commandment to love one another just as he loved them, which was to be the mark that they were his followers. Loving one another the way Jesus loves them would show the world who they were, disciples of Jesus Christ. From cleansing them and setting them apart, Jesus begins to teach them. Really, he's preparing them for what's about to come, what's coming for them. And throughout the Gospels, we read times where the disciples are not picking up what Jesus is laying down, right? And I say amen to that as a guy who needs a little bit extra explaining sometimes. Actually, a lot of times I need a little bit extra explaining. 
Jesus is trying, he's laying it straight for them here. He, he taught them that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And even though he will be leaving them, he promises them they won't get lost. The Holy Spirit will come and guide them and be in them. And in this teaching, really Jesus preparing his disciples for his death and resurrection, Jesus gives them a lesson of joy. In, in chapter 15, Jesus teaches them to abide in him so that his, that his joy may be with them. And Jesus tells them um, what he taught them about abiding in him was so that their joy may be full, John 15, 11. And then his message continues. His message on joy continues in chapter 16. And we'll pick it up in verse 16. And it says, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Because I go to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your, joy, your sorrow will be turned into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into this world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of me, of the, ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. And we know what was coming for the disciples was going to be moments that felt very far away from joyful. And I love here that Jesus, he knew their needs. In fact, we don't want to overlook verse 19. Jesus knows their needs and he addresses them. They didn't, they didn't want to ask, but Jesus, he, he answered their question. And he ends the teaching by encouraging them to keep asking, to ask. But what Jesus taught them, and us today really, is revolutionary. That your joy may be full. What a phrase. What a statement. And despite what it looks like in verses 17 and 18, the message wasn't lost on the, on the disciples. Later in John's life, the gospel writer wrote a few letters in First and Second John. John continues with this teaching language, so your joy may be full. Let me call your attention to 1 John 1, 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we've seen it and testified to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that, um, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. So what is joy? How do we define it? If you open up any dictionary, you'll find joy defined as the feeling of great pleasure or happiness and happiness. 
A deeper dive into the word um, might bring you up to look up the original Greek word for our modern-day translation that we see in our Bibles for the word joy, which is chara, meaning a calm delight or inner gladness. And in Galatians 5.22, we are taught that joy is a fruit or, or evidence of the Spirit in us. So then, can, what, can we, what can be an acceptable Christian definition of joy? Um, I, John Piper once wrote, and I thought he gave a good description that I'm going to share it with us this morning. Joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in his word and in his work. So, as um, John Piper would say, and others might say too, joy is an emotion. The definition you probably see is, is an emotion. And we can find a problem in that emotions are not always something that we can control. We can make ourselves, we can't make ourselves have certain emotions or not have some. We might be able to control our circumstances that cause those emotions, but we can't override our brains to feel a certain way. I've had plenty of emotions I've tried not to have. And I'll be honest, one emotion I'm experiencing right now is anxiousness. I'm in front of a group of people. Everyone's looking at me. Right? I'm teaching God's word. I, I'm going to be held accountable for that. Our senior pastor is taking notes. I mean, who wouldn't be nervous over these things? And controlling my emotions is not a matter of will. I can't just say, Jason, stop being anxious. I don't have that power. My brain is responding to all of these logical facts. But God does have that power, and, and he administers it to the Holy Spirit. And despite whatever anxieties I might have, my joy hasn't been taken away. I'm reminded that the Bible I'm teaching is God's word, not mine. And at the center of it is Jesus. In fact, our texts this morning are his words. And it is by God's spirit that I'm able to understand the gospel and see its life-giving truth. Not a work of myself. So really, despite um, the anxiety, I'm ultimately experiencing joy. Which highlights the truth that biblical joy comes from the Lord. Biblical joy is a never-ending gladness of the heart that comes from knowing, experiencing, and trusting Jesus. It's not a matter of controlling our circumstances. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, Joy, in other words, is the response and the reaction of the soul to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's our response to knowing Jesus. To that I would say, Amen. So, and right after teaching, uh, the, the teaching Jesus gave in John 16, the disciples, the disciples' circumstances changed radically, pretty quickly. Jesus uses an interesting illustration, right, of a woman giving birth. When our sons were born, um, it would, parts of, the, parts of that, the labor seemed to just drag on for my wife. It just was forever. But when it was time to give birth, things happened quickly. And then now Jesus' words that ring, for me, I can experience Jesus' words rang true. For all the delays, the pain, the, the rush, the moment my wife held our, each of our sons, the hours before seemed to have just been forgotten. The truth is the hope we bank our lives the sight of heaven on is that, is that truth found. It's, Jesus said in verse 21, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy of a human being has been born into this world. The, the joy, the illustration is to point us to the, the joy, that childbearing, um, it, when you see the child, it pushes out the pain of, of the labor before. And, and, and that's the truth 
we look to see um, in Jesus. We have, we have hope that the sorrow we experience in this world will be forgotten when we are experiencing the everlasting joy of the Lord in heaven. And while we sojourn in this life, this side of heaven, we too must learn to ask. There is a joy reserved for us in heaven, and it's everlasting. But there's a joy to experience this side of heaven as well. So then where does it come from? And is it dependent on our circumstances? I would say much of the, for much of this world, their joy is dependent on their circumstances, unfortunately. Did you know that in a few weeks, there's, there's a, a day called Blue Monday? Now, have you heard of Blue Monday? You probably heard of Black Friday and Cyber Monday, but Blue Monday? Apparently in 2005, a, a British researcher funded by the airline industry, keep, you, keep that in mind, tried to get people motivated, um, and they, des- they designated one day in January as the most depressing day of the year. They came up with this complex formula that takes into account a variety of factors, and they figured that this Monday was the day in January. Their premise uh, was that it was that the gloomiest day of the year would be marked by bad weather, check, guilt over breaking your New Year's resolutions, okay, check, money worries, those credit card statements are starting to come um, into our mailboxes, the contrast between the holiday cheer and the return to mundane reality, and that there was no days off for a month, few months now. The funny thing was, is the goal was to try to cheer people up to get them to start to travel, uh, and it just made things worse. In fact, they kind of took this on and became a, a, a pseudo-holiday in a sense. Um, and a concept I'm very familiar with is, is trying to, you know, do something and, and have a backfire, right? I've done this many times with my wife, trying to be positive, um, but turns out to be a negative, and then just double down and try to keep spinning it to make it positive, but it just makes it more negative. Apparently, in the UK, their circumstances were so bleak, they needed to, to change them. But as any traveler will know, Pastor Stephen might be able to share a little bit about that later with, if you ask him. It's difficult to travel in the winter. Even, so even scheduling a vacation, it's not going to guarantee joy. Traveling in the winter can be rough, right? Delays, angry people, more delays. It was a nice try on the airline industry part to get people to, to, to travel. Um, but it's kind of a, the failure was kind of a no-brainer. Because the perfect vacation, even if they could live up to that, was going to end. And they were going to be returning back to the mundane life again. Blue Monday can't be cured by escaping reality. But that really wasn't the problem, escaping reality. And the the scriptures are teaching us um, that there is a valuable lesson for us to learn. And that is this, that there's a valuable lesson in learning on, on the source of our joy, sourcing our joy in our life. I'm going to draw your attention to Psalm 4, 7, who brings this truth to life. Okay? David wrote in Psalm 4, You have put more joy in my heart than, that, than they have when their grain and wine abound. What he's saying, basically, is that he's got more joy from God than anything this world, anything abundance can offer him. So it was, he was changing the perspective and the source of joy was his aim there. So what David was poetically saying is that the joy of the Lord far outweighs the joy found in having an abundance of earthly goods. And his son Solomon proved that as well. And for me, that's been, that's a tough lesson for me to get through this thick skull. And my heart believes that the only lasting joy is found in Jesus. 
But I still feel like I'm seeking vainly joy from the temporal things of this world. At the beginning of, of last year, I began to read a, a really good book on the book of Ecclesiastes. And for almost a year, Pastor Phil monthly taught us out of the book of Ecclesiastes. And all the messages were loud and clear. Joy found in things of this world is vain and is, is, gonna, is gone in a flash. But joy found in the eternal will never fade. Yet still, I have to continue to resist the temptation to look to the vain things of this temporal world to bring me joy that I seek. And here's the thing. God has filled this world um, with things that bring joy, right? There is much joy in birth of our children, taking in the beauty of creation, God's provisions in our lives. But what I need to be reminded, and I would say the same for us as well, is that these joys are given to us to orient me, orient, uh, orient us to the giver of these joys. They point us to a greater joy found in Christ. If you do a word search and the word joy in the scriptures, you're going to find many, many scriptures that reference joy, that have the word joy in it. But during this year's Advent, I was drawn to the message that the angels brought to the good shepherds. It's, remember their message? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Great joy, they proclaimed. When I looked into other times in the Bible where the words great joy, or the, that combination of words, great joy was mentioned, God showed me some wonderful treasures that be found in his word. And they were, they were there, and for them there was a purpose for them. And similarly in them, they were all pointing me to Jesus. Let me show you. The first mention, the first time Scripture uh, mentions God's people having great joy was when the Davidic king anointment fell on Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 1. 1 Kings chapter 1 says, There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. They, then they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. From the people's perspective, the anointed kingly line of David was in jeopardy, and there was an attempt to hijack the throne. But the wrong was made right, and Solomon was anointed king. And the camp um, that was trying to take it from him, they could hear this great joy, this noise of their great joy being proclaimed. However, this joy did not last. We read in Scripture how Solomon's reign was not perfect, nor were many of his successors. But the people's great joy, although temporary, it had a purpose. It points us to the greatest joy of being under the kingship of the true and perfect king, Jesus. The next one, many years later, God's people found themselves coming out of the captivity and lacking true peace. King Hezekiah was restoring God's people. Along with restoring the temple worship of God, as Pastor Stephen read in our scripture reading, Hezekiah reinstated the Passover celebration. I'm going to reread Chronicles 30, verse 26. So there was a great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like it in Jerusalem. God's people were able to once again rest in him. Unfortunately, we know that this great joy did not last, and God's people turned away from him again and gave up their rest. 
But their moment of great joy still serves us, though. It also points us to an even greater joy that we find in Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. True rest can be found. It can be found in Jesus. The third example was a, of great joy was experienced when they rebuilt the wall and it was dedicated in the book of Nehemiah. And they offered great sacrifices, Nehemiah 12, 43 says, that day and rejoice, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. And the women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Once again, God's people had come out of captivity and they were restored and able to worship their God freely. But that didn't last as well. And the people once again turned from their God, whom was to be their protection. And once again, though, their moment of great joy serves to point us to the great shepherd, our great shepherd, Jesus, who provides us ultimate protection. John chapter 20, verse 27, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. In the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, great joy was experienced as well. Great joy was experienced by Mary when she left the empty tomb to tell the disciples that Jesus had risen from the grave, Matthew 28. And the disciples experienced great joy upon witnessing Jesus ascend into heaven, Luke 24. And the final mention of great joy um, is, I think, the closest to us. In Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas tell the amazing works of God and great joy. Acts 15.3. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in great deal the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. The message of Jesus Christ, the good news of salvation through him, was being received by the Gentile world. Sinners from every tribe and tongue and nation can be saved and by the transforming work of Jesus. See, and you and I are still experiencing, um, sitting here today, are still experiencing that great joy. We have tasted the best of joy this side of heaven. The gospel message that sinners, enemies of God, can be restored to a right relationship with God must never be clouded by our experiences. This joy is the joy that lasts and I'm sure if the disciples knew what was coming, how the world was about to change, they would, may have, they would have understand right away what Jesus was teaching them when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow, sorrow will be turned into joy. We can tend to think of joy as momentary and fleeting, feelings that come and go as life kind of allows. But the best joy is strong enough to to, for the re- realities of, of life. And it will be, this great joy, it will be our balm when the enemy's attack on joy wounds us. When life in our fallen world strikes us hard. Now, I will say this, that there is one danger, um, once of thinking joy is optional. We must not think of it as it's just optional for us. It's, just, it's the icing on the cake, so to speak. 
Um, some Christians get to be happy, but wishing we were one of those handful that do. If our joy is rooted in how well we see life seems to be going, our joy will falter and fade when it comes to trials, and they will come. More often than I want to admit, my joy has, has been rooted in my feeling secure or comfortable, successful or liked. Things that when I just say them sound so fleeting. But the message Jesus' disciples needed to hear is one I needed to hear and we need to hear um, in our lives is that in verse 22 again, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. That's the eternal joy we sought out to see this morning. Charles Spurgeon once said, believers are not dependent upon circumstances. Their joy comes not from what they have, but from what they are. Not from where they are, but from whose they are. Not from what they enjoy, but from that which was was suffered for them by their Lord. There's a reason why David wrote in Psalm 51, 12, Restore to me the joy of, of my salvation. Uphold within me a willing spirit. There is great joy to be focused on in our salvation. And as Jesus states, that's a joy that no one can take. Throughout the Acts of the Apostles and their letters, we see people facing circumstances that should have robbed them of their joy, but didn't. Okay, so then we might ask ourselves, how do we guard the joy we have found in God? And much of, Paul, much of what Paul wrote on this subject was written while he was suffering, in fact. Let's consider his words in Philippians chapter 4. He says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How do we guard ourselves from slipping into looking for joy from the temporal? Where do we find protection from having our joy in Christ perpetually under assault? We preserve the joy we have in God by asking God to guard it. We pray in faith. We pray. And not in understanding do we pray. In fact, there is much pain in this life which we do not understand. But we hold fast to our prayers to the God whose peace cannot be explained or understood. And we pray and we pray and he will guard our hearts. Look again at what Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And that day you will ask me from, you ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Is that not the encouragement we need to hear these days? The gospel message we preach is so beautiful. Only the Christian gospel tells us of a God who calls his followers to know him and obey him for the sake of their own joy. For the joy set before Jesus, he went to the cross to restore us to God and to real joy. The joy that was in the beginning when God dwelt among his image bearers. Brothers and sisters, the first Advent we spent last month remembering and celebrating has a sequel. God became a man and dwelt with sinful man to redeem and restore man's relationship with God. 
and he will come again, and we will be with him in glory. A great joy will be with us forever. So keeping the Advent up, that doesn't sound as bad anymore, huh? Remember, a reminder of great joy is a decoration we may not want to put away. So how can we put into practice these words Jesus taught his disciples and us as well? How can we experience sorrow now and not let our ultimate joy be taken from us? There's a part of one of the Puritans' prayers that I think can orient us into the right direction. And I'm going to read it to you. It says this, O Christ, all thy ways of mercy tend to an end in my delight. Thou didst weep, sorrow, suffer, that I might rejoice. For my joy thou hast sent the Comforter, multiplied thy promises, shown me future happiness, given me a living fountain. Thou art preparing me for joy, and me, or sorry, sorry, thou art preparing joy for me, and me for joy. I pray for joy, wait for joy, long for joy. Give me more that I can hold, desire, or think of. Measure out to me my times and degrees of joy at work, business, duties. If I weep at night, give me joy in the morning. Let me rest in the thought of thy love, pardon for sin, my title to heaven, my future unspotted state. (laughs) What a truth to pull from Scripture. Let me close with this. To the sinner, Jesus has suffered to give you joy. When your response is repentance, you will find a pardon for sin and adoption into the family of God. To the saints, we pray for a joy in this life with assurance that future joy is being prepared for us. The Christian life is not a guarantee of a good life with no pain. Quite the opposite, actually. But the Christian life, lived in the light of future joy, can offer many moments of joy while we wait for the future greater joy. That future great joy where we are with our King. That future great joy where we are in his rest. A future great joy we, we, where we are protected by his staff, that, we, that our joy may be full. Amen? Let me pray the, the Puritan's prayer of us in a, a modern version of it. My, my, my retake on that as, a, as our closing prayer. Jesus, your loving kindness gives us joy. The joy set before you, you endured the cross. And now we get to experience your great joy. Thank you for your faithfulness shown to us daily by the Holy Spirit, reminding us of your promises and bringing to remembrance the hope we have in Jesus. You are preparing a great joy for us. And by giving us moments of joy now, we are being readied to receive your great joy. Help us to wait patiently and expectantly for your great joy. We ask for your joy according to your goodwill and the everyday moments of our lives. And when the waves of life seem to wash um, us away from joy, bring us back to the safe shores of your salvation, our adoption, and a future hope of glory. In Jesus' name, amen.